Okay, in the remaining uh, few minutes we have, uh, I'm going to, I just want to share a few thoughts. Um, we, we spent the 40 days leading up into Easter looking at uh, the cross and what the cross means. Uh, it was my, uh, it was the original plan that we were actually going to spend some time after uh, Easter focusing on the resurrection uh, you know, because the cross actually and the resurrection, they go together and what the resurrection means. And, and I'm going to defer that resurrection series to another point in time because um, uh, it's just not feasible for me to fit five talks into 10 minutes here. So, um, but let's, I, I just want uh, to draw our minds to the resurrection and the significance of the resurrection uh, for our faith uh, and uh, so the title of this kind of one-off sermon this morning is This Changes Everything. And this is not in reference to uh, the unicorn frappuccino. I don't know if you guys, how many of you guys had that? All right, so a few of you. Uh, actually, yesterday, I think we, I had the second last unicorn frappuccino in Calgary. Um, my, my wife was in line and... Uh, the, the, I think the person in front of her uh, had researched all over the city uh, to find out if there's anybody left uh, that had unicorn frappuccinos and there weren't anywhere, but they're at Walden Starbucks, there were still some. And so they went to Walden Starbucks and, uh, and there was a whole bunch of kids, uh, teenagers behind my wife and, uh, and she had the second last one. And then she had to watch these sad faces all walk away uh, from... Starbucks there, but uh, this changes everything. This referring to resurrection, that the resurrection was the moment that the revolution that Jesus started began and, and just multiplied and took over really the world. If it weren't for the resurrection, uh, I don't think any of this that we understand as Christianity or church um, or faith in Jesus. You know, we sang about the significance of Jesus uh, as our Savior, as our King this morning as we worship together. Uh, we wouldn't be able to sing or say any of these things if it weren't for the resurrection. Death has been a reality for every human being for all of history. And sometimes we don't like to think about death. But sooner or later as we grow up, we start to ponder death. And and the scriptures say that, that death is the consequence of our, of our sin. That, that death is actually this enemy that cannot be defeated. That regardless of how you and I live, how good you and I are, at some point in our life we will face death right in the face. And the longer we live, usually the more that thought begins to dominate our thinking as you see friends pass away, as you see family members pass away, as you see generations passing away, and that generation uh, is getting closer and closer to yours. You know, as we're younger, you know, you know maybe if there's some kind of tragedy, death is forced upon us. Uh, but if you've had a story like mine, maybe you've been fortunate enough that, that death hadn't, hasn't hit home in your younger years. But as I get older and I see uh, not only great-grandparents that have passed, but now grandparents that have passed, uncles, um, other family members, 
other friends that I've had that have uh, died because of tragedy, uh, all of a sudden death becomes more and more, uh, you, can't, you can't ignore it. it, it the, the emphasis, the, the dominance of it in our mind's eyes is, is becoming bigger and bigger. And, and this, about a month ago, I went to my grandpa John's funeral. Uh, a grandpa who I was very close with, and uh, I grew up on his farm. Uh, significant people in my life. In fact, I would say um, a large, uh, I would attribute my, my faith uh, largely to the legacy that I had on that side of my family. Uh, my grandma's mom on that side, I lived to be 113 in Canada. Uh, she was Canadian. She was the oldest Canadian at the time. She lived to be 113. Um, and, uh, and she prayed. When, when I was a young kid, I remember I was about you know, five, six, somewhere in there, and she asked me what I... She's like, Matt, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a man that serves God, because I was just trying to say the right answer to please my grandma, right? <laughs> I was like, Grandma would like that. But she prayed for that for me for every day of my life, um, every day of her life. Uh, eventually, she, I don't know how... She had eight eight kids, and they had uh, grandkids. And so she had, you know, honestly, 100 uh, kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, and she would pray for every single one of them by name. Um, and uh, that's, part of, that's part of my legacy that I'm grateful for. Uh, my, grandpa, my grandpa John, my grandma Mary, uh, they continued that legacy. They prayed for me, uh, our family, my brothers, uh, their grandkids, their kids, uh, every day by name. And so my grandpa John passed uh, a few weeks back, and, um, and so we took the whole family out, uh, and this, is the, this was the first moment that my boys, I have three boys, 10, 9, 10, 8, and 7, the numbers always change, it's difficult, <laughs> 10, 8, and 7, 10, 9, is it 9? Or nine. Oh, whatever. <laughs> I, I got to stop. I, this is distracting me. I, you know, they're, they're young. They're younger. They're, they're growing. And, um, and this is their first encounter with, with death. And, and so, you know, Lisa and I talked. It's like, at what point do we start to introduce death? Uh, grief, um, and uh, and so we we thought it was important that we as a whole family went to the funeral. They had some relationship with my grandpa. It's like for them to actually begin to process and think about this reality that we can't ignore, that we actually have to think about, live through, and come to grips with in some way. And uh, you know, my kids, they at varying levels, they they kind of got it and processed it. Uh, you know, the first night we got there, was, it was the night of the viewing uh, before the funeral the next day. And, uh, and you know, we kind of show up as a, you know, big family. And my youngest son, Silas, opens the door and runs in. He's like, where's grandpa? And runs down the aisle. Uh, he didn't get kind of like the whole respectful environment thing. Uh, and, uh, and then he turns around and he, he says to us, he says, so are we putting John in the ground today or tomorrow? Um, so I don't know if he's like, you know, there's some level of process there. Um, not sure how much of the reality of death has hit him yet, but, but the reality of death 
is something that we'll have to face. It's the great enemy. It's the inevitable fate of every human being. And, and the Bible says that this is the reality of every human being uh, because of sin. I want to read uh, just a couple of points on resurrection this morning. I, I, I believe that the resurrection is the hope of the world. That the resurrection of Jesus answers the great question of death. That the resurrection of Jesus is not, was not just something for him. Oh, it's cool that Jesus got to be resurrected, but it was a foreshadow of the promise for us. In Luke 24... Verses 1 to 6, this is, this is on the day of the resurrection. It says, on the first day of the week. Everybody say the first day of the week. Let's try it one more time. Say the first day of the week. Very early in the morning. Oh, you don't have to keep repeating me, sorry. Uh, the reason I got you to repeat the first day of the week is because we'll see in Luke and in the Gospel of John that it's... They're both very adamant on us understanding this is the first day of the week. Why? Because the understanding of the Jewish calendar, the Jewish week, was out of creation, a seven-day week, seven days of creation. And John and Luke are telling us there's a new creation that's happening. God is doing something new. That our old understanding, our old paradigm, our old narrative of, of creation, of life and death is actually changed, and this is the first day of the new creation. So on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed lightning stood beside them in their fright. The women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here he is, he is not risen. Why are you looking? He is, he is. Did I say he has not risen? Oh, I, I got to be honest with you this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm running on a lack of sleep here. Um, he, he is not risen. That would be the expectation is what I meant to say, of those women that were going to look for Jesus. They didn't expect that he would be risen. But what the Bible actually says, <laughs> what the Bible actually says is he is not here. He has risen. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Why do you look for the living among the dead? They were looking for hope in the wrong place. They were looking for hope in the wrong place. They had this expectation because it's been the narrative of all of history that you live and you die. You live and you die. And this is the great enemy of death. And they come looking, trying to understand what was the significance of what happened, the disappointment in Jesus. They had these ideas that we won't get into. But they had this expectation of Jesus as king and what that meant. And those expectations, they were let down. But Jesus did something more significant, something better that they're looking for hope in the wrong places. And, and I would, my simple question this morning is, where do we look for hope? Are we looking for hope in the wrong places? And there's some 
obvious trajectories to that question. There's some of us here that are looking for hope in places that we know in our heart of hearts are not giving us hope. There's some of us here this morning that are, that are looking to what the Bible calls idols, things to deliver significance and hope and life that actually can't ever deliver it to us. Whether that's money and having a certain status, security, getting that job, materialism, that house, that car, relationships. Man, if this relationship would just be fixed or this relationship would be better, then you know, I'd have hope and I would have life. And, but in the back of your head, in the back of my head, we always know that regardless of all of those things, that death will at some point look us in the eye. And those things are fleeting hopes. They're, they're not real hope. And are we looking for hope in the wrong places? I want to talk about two other significant places that we actually look, f- look for hope, and they kind of sound like the Christian story, the gospel story, uh, but they're different. They're actually significantly different, and I think the resurrection corrects them. The resurrection, in my opinion, is one of the most critical foundational pieces of our faith, and that if we don't actually grab hold of the resurrection, we're, we're in danger of lo- losing what our true hope is. So I'm going to talk about two ditches this morning in the few minutes I have left. Two ditches. Um, And it goes without saying that when you're driving, you want to avoid the ditches. Uh, Anybody fallen asleep at the wheel before? I have when I was 16. Uh, I hit a ditch, fell asleep on the wheel on a, you know, seven-hour drive into Saskatoon, and I was about five hours in. I was all by myself. I fell asleep. Um, and I, I hit the ditch, went right into a snowbank, and the car stopped, and, uh, and I couldn't, uh, it wouldn't start, and I'm just freaking out, and I was like, how do I, you know, what do I do? What do I tell my parents? This is the days before cell phones. There was a day before cell phones, <laughs> and I didn't have a way to contact anybody, you know, and I remember, like, sitting there, like, praying, like, like, God, the car won't work, and, you know, help me... I just prayed that this car would start again. And, uh, and so I'm praying, and then I open my eyes, and I see that the car is actually still in drive. And I put it back to park, and it starts. And I was, uh, <laughs> there you go. Um, and my, my dad actually worked for, tr- sidebar, my dad worked for a trucking company at the time, and one of his coworkers drove by the highway and later told my dad, yeah, I saw your son on this, he was stuck in the ditch. And my dad's like, and you didn't stop for him? That's... So they were, he wasn't happy about that, but we, we want to avoid the ditches when we drive. And, and I believe that the resurrection actually helps us, uh, fall, helps us from, from moving into one of two ditches and, and having a false hope, an unbiblical hope. Why do you look for the living among the dead? So... The first one I want to talk about, the first ditch, is the, the myth of progress. And that sounds really fancy, but once I describe it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The myth of progress. It's a combination of sci- scientific and economic advances with the democratic freedom over the last 200 years, the Industrial Revolution, the, the Enlightenment, and this, this belief that we can actually make this world a better place. That we in the Western world actually bought into this, that everything was evolving, technology was 
evolving, this, you know, theories of evolution, and, and this, this concept that we will continually become better human beings, that this world will continue to become better, that we can, with our own smarts, our own abilities, actually create utopia here on earth. This utopian dream is, in fact, a parody of a Christian vision, and, and, and it, sounds, it sounds similar because the Bible does talk about a new heavens and a new earth, that God is going to create something new out of the old. But this belief is this understanding that history is moving towards a goal, and that goal will emerge from within rather than being a new gift from elsewhere. We will become what we have the potential to be by education and hard work. This is the world that you and I have grown up in. And the problem with the myth of progress is that it does not deal with the issue of evil. This is why all the evolutionary optimism of the last 200 years remains helpless before world war, before drug crime, before Auschwitz, apartheid, child pornography, and all those other interesting sidelines that this idea of progress and evolution has thrown up for our entertainment in the 20th. 21st century. Evolutionary optimism is helpless before addiction. It's helpless before relational fallout. It's, helpful, it's helpless before, um, bef- before the brokenness in your homes, before abuse, before disappointment. But you, you just look into your own story and you would say, I know in my heart of hearts that this idea of progress, this idea of things just continually becoming better is a lie. That at the end of the day, death stares me in the face. The world is, in fact, still a sad and wicked place, not a happy upward progress towards the light, and, the, and, the, and this myth of progress cannot deal with evil. It can't stop it. In fact, if evolution gave us Hiroshima, it can't all be good. And I would ask this, how many of us have actually bought into this concept that sounds like scripture because God is world affirming and he's wanting to bring this world to a new place. But we've kind of combined it with this idea that is not a biblical one, but it's a cultural one. And somehow we think that we can do it on our own. And I would suggest to you that the resurrection is part of, of how we can prevent ourselves from going into that ditch. And I'll come back to that in a second. The second ditch I want to talk about is disembodied utopia. Again, another really fancy word, fancy phrase. Um, But again, you'll you'll recognize it when I describe it that, uh, and I talked about this a number of weeks ago, but I'll bring it up again. Disembodied utopia, or this idea of souls in transit, it's, it's from the influence of Plato's thinking that entered Christian thinking early on. Um, and for those that you care, you know, it takes the form of something we call Gnosticism, and I won't really get into that. But basically, the essential idea being that the material world is bad. Everything material is bad. And we are spirit taking on these broken physical bodies. And at the end of the day, everything material will... Uh, will pass away and we will become spiritual people in some other utopic place. 
You've heard... Uh, You've probably heard this idea around Christianity for a long time because there's something true about this as well. This, this idea that everything isn't quite right, that we can't fix it on our own, and that God is interested in rescuing us and saving us. Those things are absolutely true. But in this ditch, the belief is that you're a wretch, that you're terrible, that nothing in this world and nothing about you is actually redeemable, so God has to snatch us away. He has to snatch our bodies away, our spirits away from our bodies. And the problem is this view doesn't account for the goodness and beauty of God's creation. It doesn't align with the biblical story of redemption that exists from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Christians who fundamentally believe this will always have less care for people, less less concern for suffering, for reconciliation, for justice, for healing, because at the end of the day, we're all just hanging on for whatever reason until the day that God will come and take us away and our spirits can go to heaven. Over against both of these, these popular and mistaken views, the central Christian affirmation is that what the creator God has done in Jesus Christ and supremely in his resurrection is what he intends to do for the whole world Mean, and by the meaning of this world, the entire cosmos and all of its history, and it begins in you and I. Evolutionary progress and disembodied utopia is not biblical hope. And my guess is in this room, many of us are in one of these two ditches. There's some of you that have grabbed hold of this idea that God's going to rescue me, he's going to take my spirit, and we're going to go to heaven when we die. And some of you haven't really embraced that concept, but you've embraced this idea that, you know, God's doing something in this world and he's chosen me and I'm going to make this world a better place on my own. In Luke 24, 30, 33, as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. Can any of you guys remember another biblical story where people were handed some food and said, your eyes will be opened when you eat this? Anybody? Genesis 3, serpent, the fruit. When you eat this, your eyes will be opened and you'll see things clearly, you know, in good and evil. And the reality is that what the serpent couldn't deliver on the deception of the serpent is actually done away with at the resurrection. That in Luke, he's actually intentionally drawing on this theme and saying that, that for us to see things clearly, we need the resurrection. That our eyes are open to see things as they actually are with the resurrection. See, resurrection affirms that there is evil in this world. It affirms that there is a miraculous, gracious act of God that is needed to save us, that is needed to transform us, that is needed in this world. It also affirms that there is goodness and beauty, that the ultimate goal of God isn't actually to start over again, but to transform and redeem that which he has already started. It affirms that we need to serve others in our world and lead, lead the way in the area of social justice, but it also affirms that that isn't enough. I get caught in these conversations with people often that, you know, in, in church, 
church, Christianese language, they talk about mission and evangelism, and it's, and it's like we have to choose between the two. But the resurrection says that the two belong together. That we have a broken world, and God is calling us to be co-partners with him because of the resurrection in helping transform our world. But you and I can't do it alone. How many of you guys can resurrect yourself? Anybody? How many of you guys believe that it would take an act of God to resurrect you from the dead? You should all have your hands in the air. So this is the helplessness that the gospel brings us to, is that there is nothing that you can do by yourself. It is only by the gracious power and spirit of God that we can actually have a hope in resurrection. You see, the, the actual biblical hope, again, we could talk about this for a long time, but let me summarize it very quickly. The actual biblical hope for the Jewish people, which the context of resurrection in, in Scripture is, is set, is that there would one day be a resurrection of the dead. This whole idea of a spiritual disembodied heaven is actually not a biblical idea. It's a cultural idea that we, we took on. The biblical idea is that you and I will be resurrected physically in a transformed world and transformed bodies. And I believe that this is significant. I believe that the resurrection changes everything. That this is, the, this is what created the inertia for the Jesus movement. That the Christian hope is actually a life after life after death. We, we talk about life after death and, and kind of the spiritual, you know, utopia. But the Christian belief is that there's a life after life after death. That one day we will inhabit a transformed world and transformed bodies. That Jesus, the, the expectation of, the, of, of the, the Jewish people at the time, the disciples at the time, would be that we would, all the people would experience resurrection at the same time. But what happened and what they had to adjust their minds was that Jesus' body was resurrected before everybody else's. That Jesus, the scriptures say, is the first fruits if we go, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. We don't have time to read it. Read it on your own. But I'm going to go to the last verse here. It says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So let me break this down for you. What happened to Jesus gets to happen to you and me. What happened to Jesus gets to happen to you and, you and me. And resurrection affirms the goodness and beauty of this world and says, let's get on with the people. There's good work to do. But it also affirms that we're broken, that there's evil in this world, and that we're in desperate need of a transformative act of God to take us from death to life. I'm going to invite the worship team on the stage. But what is this practically mean. I'm, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and imagine with me for a second. Because if you want to talk about true Christian hope, the clearest picture we have of our hope because of the resurrection is between the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension. The Bible talks about that when he comes back, then this resurrection becomes reality for all of us. Um, but let's think a little bit about just that period of time before Jesus was ascended. Think about this. Jesus had a physical body. Close your eyes as we think about this. Jesus had a physical body. 
In Luke 23 and other places, Jesus came and ate with his disciples after he was resurrected. He enjoyed food. Even in his resurrected body, unicorn frappuccinos, bring it on. <laughs> but yet, he was also disappearing and appearing. He was there and then he wasn't. They were meeting in a room with locked doors. No one could come in. And all of a sudden, Jesus was there and he was among them. He was recognizable, but yet unrecognizable. If you've read the gospel accounts, you know that there's a number of times that Jesus appears to people and they don't recognize him immediately. But then they do recognize him. So there's something that was recognizable about his nature, about his characteristics, about his body, but yet it was different than the one he had before. But there was overlap. Jesus had scars. When he appears before Thomas, he says, says, touch touch the wound on my side, touch the, the nail wounds in my hands. That there was wounds and scars from Jesus' previous pre-resurrected life that existed in his post-resurrected life. You know what that tells me? That tells me that the suffering that you and I have in this age will be marks of victory in the age to come. That you and I have scars and wounds in our life right now, but because of the resurrection, we believe that death doesn't have the last word, that whatever type of death and suffering we experience right now in the next life will be testimonies to the greatness and power of God because of the resurrection. That your, your and I relationships that we have right now will endure into eternity. That the relationships that Jesus had with his followers didn't cease after his resurrection. That you and I are going to be hanging out in this new heavens, new earth, and our new bodies, and I'm going to be saying, hey, John, hey, Kayla, we actually know each other and that we have this history together. It's not, we're not starting from brand new. We're actually continuing something that's starting already today. I believe that the resurrection hope is so much greater and significant than we often think about. And it saves us from despair saying, from saying nothing that I do in this life matters. And Jesus calls out, and the reason it's the first fruits is because Jesus says, between now and the future resurrection, you have work to do. And I want you to view, I want to open your eyes and I want you to view everything you experience, everything you're doing, all the work you're doing, the wounds you've experienced, the relationships you have in light of the future resurrection and know that nothing that you do for my kingdom will be in vain because I'm going to take everything that we're doing right now and I'm going to use it in my future kingdom. I'm not going to waste anything. I want you to stand with me. So I, I get it. I know that I know this this idea of resurrection is even hard for me to explain. It's it starts to push the boundaries of our mind, uh, and it's supposed to. the The Bible does not have this clear cut, nice and tidy. Hey, here how's this all going to work out? It, it like shows these glimpses of of this this new heavens, this new earth, these new bodies, this way that God is going to somehow miraculously take what has been and transform it and redeem it from the inside out. And because of that, we have, we have hope 
that God is going to do what only he can do, but that he's going to use the things in this life that we're doing already. And so we live in this place of in-between, this place of resurrection hope. And I'm going to pray for you right now. And if, and if you're someone who hasn't put their hope in Jesus before, if you're someone here this morning that says, that's the hope that I want, that's the confidence I want, that's the resurrection life that I want to be able to look forward to, I invite you to pray with me. Because resurrection life is available to you and I simply when we bend our knee and make Jesus king and ask him to forgive us of our sins and he removes the consequence of sin, which is death. And then we can live with confidence and hope that what happened to Jesus gets to happen to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, we ask that you would come into relationship with us, that you would be, uh, that you would come into relationship with me, that you would be my king. Lord, I want to live for you. I recognize that your resurrection has made you the ruler and king of all, and I bend my knee to you, Father. Lord, I place my hope in you. I recognize that I am powerless before the reality of death, and I need the miraculous power of your spirit to give me hope beyond death. Lord, we thank you that what happened to you and Jesus gets to happen to us. And I pray that we would live in light of that reality, in light of that truth, in light of that confidence. And Lord, I pray for those people in the room this morning that have wounds, that have suffering, that have things that are going on in their lives. And Lord, we recognize that those things are eventually just going to be testimonies that testify about your power, your victory, and your goodness. So even if we don't feel that right now, Lord, we pray that you would give us that perspective, that, that understanding, that conviction that you are up to something amazing and good and you're going to transform and redeem us in this world. Thank you, Jesus, that you are big enough to do this. Amen. Just imagine quickly with me, you know, Jesus died on the cross and then he wasn't resurrected. What happens? I would suggest to you that nothing would have happened. If you read the New Testament after the resurrection of Jesus, what happens that because people saw him with their eyes, because they touched him with their hands, because they interacted with him, their eyes were opened, they realized that death could not hold him. And because they saw their resurrection hope face to face, it gave them a boldness and a courage that they could go forward in this revolution called the kingdom of God, the church, this Jesus movement happened. And I would suggest that if they wouldn't have seen Jesus, if they wouldn't have actually come face to face with resurrection hope, that nothing would have happened. That's the same confidence, the same hope, the same courage that I believe that God wants to give to us, that, that he's saying resurrection is a reality, that it happened to Jesus, and because it happened to Jesus, he showed it to us. He was the first fruits, he was a foreshadow, so that he would say, 
No, this is actually worth putting your entire faith and life into. You read into the book of Acts and people are, are giving their actual lives. They're dying for this gospel, this good news. They're dying because they're proclaiming that Jesus is risen, that he's alive, that, that this new thing is happening. God has a new creation. They're inviting everybody to this and they're threatened. Their lives are threatened and they don't care. They don't care. They get martyred. They get killed. They, and they willingly do it. Why do they willingly do it? Because they saw with their own eyes Jesus. The gospel accounts were given to us to say this really happened. And because of that, we live with confidence. We live with courage. And we believe that God is up to something that's even beyond death, that we have a hope beyond death. And we live in reality of that today. So Jesus, we thank you for resurrection. We thank you for hope. I pray that you would give us courage and boldness in this world that needs to know your love, that needs to know your grace, that needs to know your goodness, and that you've invited us to actually partner with you to bring resurrection hope into this world. Lord, we recognize that there's things that we can do even today even today, because you're already transforming us and transforming this world. But Lord, we recognize that we are completely dependent on your spirit and that resurrection does not happen without your power and without your grace. And we're completely dependent on you, Jesus. We say that we need you, that without you, we are literally dead. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.